Hello and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan and today I'm joined by Arnon Manor, the Vice President of Visual Effects at Sony, whose credits include projects like Baby Driver, 21 Jump Street, and Peter Rabbit, uh, as well as more recently, Cops and Robbers. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Arnon. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So you studied both graphic design as well as animation and computer graphics. How was your schooling experience? And is there anything that you would have changed about it? I will not. I would not have changed a thing other than I would have done 10 more years of schooling had I had the opportunity. I think being in school, I'm older than most of you, than all of you on this uh, call, but um, I still look back at my schooling and that was the most creative time in, in my career because you you truly have no limits you know you're not doing something for pay you're not doing something for somebody else you're doing you have a brief and you have things that you need to do and coursework but you're really just the creativity and I look back at some of the work and I talk to some of my friends who are all working in the field and we all look back at that time and think that was an incredible creative time so I wouldn't change anything uh, in that regard. I will say that, you know, I, I started off, I went to art school in, in England. And uh, the one really incredible thing about going to art school in England specifically, I believe, is that you have to do a foundation course in art and design before you go and do start a bachelor's degree. And it's kind of like, you know, if you want to go to med school, you do pre-med. If you want to go to law school, you do pre-law. And when you think about it, you know, the idea of that course is really to give you a foundation in art and design, whatever then you're going to branch off photography, design, animation, film, whatever you do. But that the one year foundation course, you get the opportunity and I got the opportunity to really touch so many art forms from silkscreen printing to etching to photography to pencil drawing to sculpting things that I don't do directly in my job, but what I learned uh, during that time is still reflective in the work and, and that I do today and how I think about things. And that was a while ago. So it was really incredible. That's wicked, yeah. I guess, is there anything that you would recommend for students besides maybe a foundational year uh, that do you wanna go into visual effects or animation? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> well, there's two different aspects. I, I went into visual effects from, from art. So I went to art school and then I went into, uh, I studied graphic design and I kind of got myself into animation kind of by chance, I'll explain in a second. And the other ways of people getting into visual effects is maybe less than animation because animation you tend to definitely go through art school. Um, but, you, but there's also, there was a big push I think at some point through architecture, people that went through architecture school and kind of, you know, so I think there's two entry levels into that. One is more on the creative side, art side, and one is more on the tech side. And, and again, visual effects, especially in the CG aspect of it, you kind of need both. You know, you have, you're obviously creating art of some sort, but there's a technology behind it. So it's kind of like, I don't know, in my view, I look at it as if I'm a car driver, you know, a race car driver, I know how an engine works, but, and I know how to open the hood and, you know, change the spark plugs, but that's not really my job. And I don't necessarily, but I know how it, I know, I know how it functions and that allows me to actually be a better driver because then I can listen to the engine. I can, I know when things go wrong. So it's a little bit like that. So why I can't, I can't write code. I know what I want the code to do. And so if I'm trying to do something 
that requires code writing, I can explain that to the person who is a specialist in code writing and I can explain to them what I, what I need, just as an example. Yeah, no, that totally, that completely makes sense. So I guess kind of talking more now about your actual career, what drew you originally to the film industry? <clears throat> Storytelling. And I think ultimately, I'll get into that for a second, but I, but I think storytelling is really the, the most important thing because it doesn't really matter what you do, you know, if you're a cog, and for the most part, you know, most people, I say this not, not disrespectfully because I'm myself a cog in, in a big machine, uh, you know, we're not, making a movie is not, you know, somebody in the garage, I mean, there are people that do that, you know, doing it all by yourself. It's a collaborative effort, and for the most part, even a director is at the top level of that, but even a director has a studio above them and the studio has people above them. And, you know, there's always levels that you have to go up the chain, but ultimately it's about storytelling. So whether you're just animating one shot of Peter Rabbit doing something, you're telling a story. It could be three seconds long because that's your, you know, that that's, that's your shot that you're doing. And, and you tend to do more than one shot, but you're telling a story in that one specific shot. Is he jumping? Is he dying? Is he stealing an apple? Whatever it is that Peter Rabbit is doing, you're telling a story. Uh, even if you are not animating, but if you're doing lighting, color and lighting, right? So your understanding of light and the world and how does the sun reflect on or the color of the light on the fur? How does it refract? You know, if it's, so those things are all, goes back to, to art school and things that you learn about just shading and color and light and the, and, the, and the color wheel, you know, I mean, really basic stuff. So, but it all comes down to storytelling. So that's what drew me when I was actually still in my, in my uh, bachelor's degree course, I did a, there was a, I didn't go to a film school. I went to a graphic design school, but in the basement, they actually had an old 16 millimeter rostrum camera. And that is basically a rig that, old school with, with wheels and to create animations kind of like old disney uh animations and i asked hey is anybody using this and they said no can i use it sure they but nobody knew how to work it you know and there was no there's no youtube where you can go hey how do you use a rostrum camera you know it's like you have to figure it out but it was 16 millimeter I'm, I'm aging myself but you know it was 16 mil so it means you had to film it send it to the lab process it get the negative back or the film back, look at it on an old steam back, which is, you know, an old movie editing machine and then figure out, oh, I actually, my timings are wrong. And then you have to go in and, and edit it. But that process and telling a story in a few seconds, cause I, you know, cause making 10 seconds of animations times 12 frames, you know, that, that might've taken me two three weeks to do, but it's all about the storytelling. That's what, that's what drew me. Yeah, for sure. We actually, most of us are from Ryerson in Toronto and we, in oh. our first year, did uh, exclusively 16 millimeter film. Oh, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, which was really cool. It was a very valuable experience. I think everyone learned quite a lot about filmmaking because it makes you think very intentionally about every choice that you make. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess because you're at a point now where I feel like a lot of us have no idea we there's quite a lot of things that we learn at film school but i think as far as like being a vice president of visual effects at sony i have no idea what your day-to-day -day would look like so do you mind like running us through that a little bit and what your job actually I have is no idea what my day looks like every day but 
yeah, the 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 title sounds nice, um, and it is nice, but the but ultimately, you know, my day there's no day that's similar to the other, which is really incredible, right? So when we make movies, the good thing is we're not you know we're not producing something uh, that is a template of something else. You know, we're not creating you know a shoebox where you just need to create a shoebox. Every movie, even if you think that you've done it before, feels like you're doing a, making a movie for the first time. And that's both amazing and it's really frustrating because you've done it before. I mean, I work for Columbia Pictures, you know, Sony is, is and Columbia Pictures has been around for a hundred years, you know, on our studio lot. Uh, and hopefully one day when things open up and you guys come to LA, I will take you uh, on a tour of Sony, uh, which is actually the old MGM studios. So there's a history there where you know gone with the wind was made you know and incredible other movies and so there's a history there but um yeah it feels like sometimes we are making movies for the first time so but my day really evolves around some set meetings meaning i know there's certain days that i have certain things to do but for the most part each movie because i oversee several movies sometimes up to 10 movies at a time each movie is in a different position you know so there's some movies that are just in script form and the studio doesn't even know whether it wants to make the movie. It's just, hey, the script, we like the script. Let's analyze it and see how much it's going to cost. Then we have movies that are in prep. They've been greenlit and we're trying to figure out how to make them. And then there's movies that are shooting and there's movies that are in post-production and there's movies that are just delivering, meaning we have crunch time, we have two weeks to go and we have half the VFX finals that we want and everybody is stressing out. So I get the array so a lot of my day actually is set, but then it's a lot of it is firefighting. You get a call and that becomes suddenly the, you know, the point of focus um, because things have to be solved. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, like with those kind of top tier managerial jobs, I'm sure there's a lot of, of overseeing and juggling uh, that happens. So that's completely fair enough. So you've worked on both CG animated projects as well as on live action projects with visual effects. I'd love to dig into some of the similarities and differences in doing that kind of work. So to start, how different are the timelines for animation projects versus doing kind of post-production visual effects work? They're very different, you know, and and I, I will say that I don't do CG or animated movies fully animated movies in my day job. So my day job uh, as, as vice president of visual effects, I manage the live action visual effects movies. Uh, we have Sony Pictures Animation that do amazing, you know, movies like Spider-Verse and, and Mitchell and Machines just came out and other kind of really cool movies like that. Uh, and that's an, uh, their own separate entity for the reason is because they are very separate types of pipelines. You know, just, and, and I'm giving averages here, you know, every movie is different, but on average, I would say, I think a, a CG or an animated movie probably has a timeline of between three to five years of production. It takes roughly about, you know, I say, don't quote me, I'm on, you know, I'm being recorded, but roughly a year, I think of, of development, you know, before, and then probably at least two to three years of actual production to do an animated movie. And when you think about it, an animated movie, um, whether it's CG or 2D, you have to think about everything. You know, there's curtains behind me. You know, if those curtains need to move, right? If you're a live action movie, 
all right, well, you put a fan behind there and there's some rustle or you, you can put some, you know, a fogger, a puff of fog and put a light and suddenly you get these beautiful God rays. If you want that to be an animation, you have to create that. The, 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 the curtain is not going to move by itself. You have to animate the curtain. You have to decide how much fog and how the God ray is going to move, you know, and that becomes very subjective. On the live action side, I would say an average lifespan of production of a movie, not development, because there's two different things. Production in a movie, I would say average is about a year. Again, more on the bigger, more complex movies that need longer shooting time and therefore longer post-production times. But I would say about a year and it breaks down Roughly, I'd say about 12 weeks of prep on average. So about three months of prep. Uh, again, roughly between, I'd say, eight to 12 weeks of shooting, let's say 10 to 12 weeks. And then normally on average, about 30 weeks of post-production. So it's about 52, 50 something weeks from beginning of like, all right, let's make this movie to let's deliver that. Obviously, some movies are a little bit less. Some movies are more depending on the complexity of, of the work that needs to be done. Yeah. Wow. That is vastly different. I mean, I expected, but still that's a, that's a yeah. pretty shocking difference. The developing, yeah. Sorry. The development process is, is what actually takes sometimes longer. You know, we I'm working on a movie now that, uh, and it's not uncommon. I think the producer who I know is a friend of mine. He said he optioned that material in 2007. And wow. they've just, we just finished shooting it recently, you know, so that's good. So for all of, of, of you and us that I think, oh, you know, the struggling of getting something made, even at that top level of, you know, quote unquote, Hollywood filmmaking, for the most part, it takes a long time and a lot of perseverance to get something through the system. It's not so you're saying it never gets better. <laughs> Even, even, even at the top level, you know, yeah. again, I'll take, I, I don't want to mention this movie by name, but this top level is a top, top producer with top talent. And yet it took him, you know, 13 years to get it off the ground. And he had a lot more access than you do. And then even that I do in terms of getting it to the right people. So things just take time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So I'm kind of curious because obviously I know Sony will have optioned the material and stuff, but you personally, what, at what point do you get involved in the production or in the, I guess, on the project? On the project? I, I'm part of the production, the, you know, the production department of the, the, the production arm, if you like, of, of the studio, but specifically for Columbia and TriStar movies. Because again, Sony is a big company. We have Sony Pictures Television and we have, you know, electronics and, and, and other, and even Sony F Entertainment has Sony Pictures Classics. It has Screen Gems. It has a bunch of different labels. I tend to only do Columbia and TriStar movies. Uh, and I, and, and, you know, I get involved from, from the beginning of the, of the script stage, you know, sometimes again, it's like, how do you, if a, if a, if a movie needs to get made, how much is it going to cost and uh, how long is it going to take and how, so, so it really is right from this, not from, you know, a lot of, sometimes, you know, you hear something, even in the trades, you read, oh, a project has been bought by Sony. 
it then takes a while before that comes down the chain to us to actually make it because it it lives in development world it needs to be written it needs to be rewritten uh, a lot of time projects come in and there's no attachments there's no actors there's no directors and those attachments take a long time and everybody right. has an opinion right i guess because you do focus mostly on visual effects so moving forward i do want to primarily talk about that um but i really wanted to talk about peter rabbit because it is a film where obviously there are cg animated characters in a live action setting. So can you tell me a little bit about that process? The, it's actually a fun movie, you know, and, and number two is just coming out. But number one, yeah, it's a hybrid movie where we shot plates, we shot real actors, and then obviously added uh, the, the animals uh, to that. So the, the process for that is, uh, is, is similar to, to other visual effects processes. Meaning, you know, the idea is that, that you shoot plates a little different when you have actual uh, characters because you have to sometimes a lot of time you're shooting plates with nothing on them and you kind of have to imagine oh here's a plate that's you know the tracking from this side to this side and how will the little critters you know move or, or eye lines if you have you know Rose Byrne who's who's playing you know B and, and she's has a conversation with Peter you know they have to match the eye lines so a lot of things like that um, that we need to figure out. So that actually segues really well into my next question, which is how closely do you work with the camera department in order to make sure that the design of the shots support the effects in post? Um, I, right now, because of where I am in, in my career, my position, I don't do it on a regular basis, but I hire people and we have teams on the ground. Uh, so every movie, because I oversee it on the studio side now, because I used to be an artist and I went up the ranks. Um, but in my position now, I hire people and people that work on the movie on the visual effects front actually do the interactions. But obviously, you know, we interact and we talk and there's a management aspect to it. But it's very, it, it is very, very crucial that there's, there are discussions uh, with the camera department and with every single department. Um, but the camera, again, I just gave the example of Peter Rabbit, you know, the camera department can't do what it wants. Uh, the DP can't necessarily do what it wants, he or she wants, if we have to introduce a CG character in there. So there has to be, again, if you're moving, if you're doing a tracking shot, then you have to figure out, like in animation, well, how long is this little critter going to move from here to here and therefore track the camera? What is the, even if it's not a, a linear move, well, how is that? Or if it's a butterfly in the air, how is that going to move or a bird and imagine it's going to be something there? And we use tools like Previs, you know, obviously to, to create what these things will look like. But the, the collaboration has to, be, uh, has to be very close. And if, it, if it's not, and it not always is, it creates a lot of issues for us on the back end course so is there someone then i guess representing the visual effects side of things on set usually to kind of oversee that yeah and normally on a movie uh we have there's two primary roles for visual effects one is a visual effects supervisor and one is a visual effects producer uh the supervisor again del i'll delineate the supervisor tends to be more on the creative and technical side and the producer is more on the producing, scheduling, budgeting side, but they work very hand in hand because 
a decision that a supervisor will make will have a financial and schedule impact. If you make a wrong, if you make a decision that is, I wouldn't say wrong, make a decision, that decision will impact how the shot is being made. And what we tend to pay for in the visual effects work is people time, is the artist time. And that's where the money comes in. You know, there's technology, but ultimately the, the biggest cost factor is people time. So if something takes longer, inevitably it's going to be more expensive. So there is close collaboration, but you also have on set people like, you know, coordinators, data wranglers, specifically you asked about camera. There's people that their job is to directly interact with the camera department to make sure what lens are you using, how high is the camera, uh, you know, what is the focus, what, what's the focal length on, on, you know, on the lenses, you know, interacting just to make sure that the data that what is, that is being shot is then being in, you know inputted into our database so when the visual effects vendors or, or artists are working on a specific shot they have that data because it's important to know what lens you used how you know what's the lighting uh, uh, configuration uh, when you're creating visual effects so there is a collaboration but we have a whole team on set of people Ph photographers uh, we have uh, um, you know, sometimes it's just video like GoPros where you, you know, we call them witness cams just to kind of say, okay, I'm just going to put a couple of GoPros just to shoot it on the side where you can see, oh, there's the camera, there's the actor. Because sometimes when you, all you get is the shot, like now, if I'm seeing you, I see there's kind of a light on your, you know, screen right, but I don't know what that looks like. If I had a, a witness camera, to the side of you, I can see, oh, she has a window or she has a light there. And then I can recreate, we can recreate that later to make sure that wh whatever we're making as a CG element, whether it's a character or an object, actually sits in the scene in a way that doesn't look uh, wrong. Right. So I guess I'm curious, is Sony, does Sony employ artists themselves or is that something that you will hire out to different companies to then do the post like visual effects work? Or is that something that you do in house? We know for the most part, we, we uh, hire companies and those companies tend to be all over the world, literally all over the world. So we could shoot a movie, I'm making it up in Atlanta. Uh, we could have actually, we shot a movie in Atlanta recently and the VFX company is in Toronto uh, and we're doing post-production in, uh, in LA. Um, and so the, yes, it's, it's global. We, we hire, for the most part, on the visual effects side, we hire the VFX team if that movie necessitates a team on the production side. So the VFX supervisor and producer for the most part. And then we actually hire out uh, companies, visual effects companies that actually do the work. So we award them work based on their, a lot of time, their specific uh, area of expertise. And you do have companies that are specialized in certain areas, companies that specialize in furry creatures companies not specialized but they're better known for those companies that specialize in what we call hard body you know cars and robots and and, and spaceships um so they there is some delineation there um and we do tend to sometimes hire a small amount of of artists that work directly at the studio but then they're, we they're in editorial but that that's not that common on a bigger scale 
That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I was just curious because you were talking about the teams and, and all of that process. So I can see now, especially why that kind of data capturing and the communication has to be so, or I guess it's such a focus and it's so important because yeah, if you, if you were sending that data to, you know, people in Toronto that uh, I can see how that could very easily go awry if you don't have people that are looking after that. So I guess what are some things that you think are important for directors and producers, actors, cinematographers, other other crew members that maybe don't have a background in visual effects? What are some important things that they should understand when working on projects that are visual effects dependent or with a heavy focus on visual effects? I mean, the big thing I would say, and this is actually obviously with, with films, with movies that are VFX heavy or VFX driven, um, but it also applies to non-VFX driven movies, is that don't think of VFX as, uh, uh, as a post-production thing. Visual effects is part of the process from beginning to end. People who don't understand visual effects think that visual effects is a post-production process. It is not. It's a filmmaking process that starts right when you, when you are about thinking about making the movie and it ends when you are delivering the movie. Where things go wrong, if I'm sure you've all heard of that, you know, quote, fix it in post. Fix it in post is the worst thing to do. The worst thing. It's inefficient. It's costly. It's, it's, there's nothing good about fixing. It doesn't, we do fix it in post, you know, of course. We do it all the time. But if you can, you know, as advice, and I say this to directors and producers I work with right in the start, if you can make a decision upfront and embrace visual effects as your friend, not as this, you know, black box of magic that you don't understand, but embrace it, ask questions and utilize it, it will actually help your filmmaking. It's a tool at the end of the day, like you choose to use, you know, a crane or a Steadicam or a Russian arm or whatever that you choose to do, visual effects is a filmmaking tool. So working up front, whether it's a a rom-com that has no perceived visual effects in it or it's uncharted you know or spider-man or whatever it is that that we're doing now they all have to be managed and thought of in the beginning so that's what i would say to experienced filmmakers and upcoming and new filmmakers like yourselves think about visual effects as a tool that you have in your arsenal of filmmaking whether you choose to use it or not is up to you but if you plan it then bring, also bring people in. A lot, of, a lot of people people think, eh, you know, we'll just wing it. Well, if you wing it, it's going to cost you a lot more money at the back end. So if you have any visual effects thoughts or anything that might be visual effects, bring in somebody or talk to somebody that has visual effects experience and ask them how they would do that shot. What do you need to shoot? How do you need to um, think about that specific moment or sequence in order for you not to have to spend three times as much on the back end? and complicate your life. Yeah, I think that's great advice. <laughs> that's definitely, I mean, that's definitely not how I had been thinking of it. Because again, at our stage, we're not doing a lot of visual effects. I mean, obviously, the everyone is aware that fix it in post is one of the most cursed phrases on a film set. But, um, but yeah, no, I think that's a really great way to kind of restructure that thought about what I'll visual give, effects is. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. And these are just some examples, which which are important, because they Again, I won't name the movie, but you know, there's a movie where we did, where somebody had a, uh, an actor had a wig on, right? And that's not uncommon. And 
I would say the makeup department weren't, I'll be nice. I say they, they didn't pay attention, right? I don't think anybody does it out of malice. But, you know, on wigs, they just the, the, um, the blending of the wig to the skin wasn't great. So a lot of, a lot of the close-ups, you just saw the webbing. And that created tons and tons of work for us to actually blend the skin and blend it. Whereas it would have been a 10-minute fix, you know, get that actor back into the makeup trailer, fix it. And, and, and it's, if you can see it, that's the other thing I would say. If you can see it, then visual effects can see it. And if visual effects can see it, then your audience can see it. So somebody at some point didn't pay attention, which then caused ultimately just a lot of time and, and money thrown away at a fix that could have literally taken 10 minutes to fix upfront cost weeks and weeks of work. So those are things obviously on a bigger stage. Again, thankfully it doesn't happen that often, but that's just one example where, you know, if you can see it, then the camera can see it. Yeah, no, for sure. That's, again, very good advice. And wow, that is brutal. Yeah, I can see that absolutely being a huge frustration. So what excites you? Obviously, you you were, as you mentioned, work on several projects at once. But what excites you the most when you're starting a new project? For the most part, it's, uh, it, it's the puzzle. You know, I mean, a, you know, getting a new script and, and a new project uh, is always exciting. You know, when you worked on a project for a year plus, obviously you're still excited about it and you want, but at some point like, all right, now, you know, what's next? So you have that just normal human desire to, all right, I love this project. I've invested a lot of my own personal emotions in it and I'd love to see it get done and done well. But when you get a new project, there's obviously that, you know, the honeymoon period of like, oh, wow, this is new, this is exciting. It's a new working with new filmmakers or, or, or new actors or there's new, new effects uh, uh, and storytelling that needs to be created. But it's always the puzzle because every movie, like I said in the beginning, every movie is different. And so even if you think that you've done a movie, you know, Peter Rabbit 1 versus Peter Rabbit 2 or Spider-Man 1 versus Spider-Man 5, whatever it is, there's always new things. And the storytelling is new. The technology is new. The, the needs of the movie creatively uh, there, there are new needs. So you have to figure out the puzzle. And that's, that excites me, you know, because at the end of the day, making a movie is a puzzle. You have to put, you have to blend between the creative needs of the story and making a good movie with a lot of people, right? And a lot of subjectivity. Uh, and also like everything in life, you are confined by a schedule and budget. So how do you make it for a schedule and a budget? You know, it's like, I always give the analogy of like going to, to the store, you know, your mom's given you 50 bucks to go to the store with a shopping list. And you're like, Oh, you know, when you actually see it, the 50 bucks, isn't going to be enough. You need 55 bucks. All right. Well, how are you going to save five bucks? You have to figure out, do you go for a cheaper version? Do you go for a, a lower amount? Do you substitute one thing for another? that's kind of what you're doing in the filmmaking process and on visual effects. You have to figure out, is this really needed? And that's the puzzle that I, that I actually love. Yeah, of course. So I really want to, I don't usually get specific into projects, but I do want to talk about one of your recent projects, which was Cops and Robbers. And that's a short film that combines spoken word poetry with animations from like 30 different artists. So, and which you actually directed. So what were some of the challenges in directing that, especially during COVID? 
Well, the big the big challenge was during COVID that we did everything remotely. I mean, you know, uh, there there are people that there were most people that worked on on this uh, I've never met before, um, and we also went global. So even in normal times, uh, we I would not have met those people. But the good thing is that again, one thing that we learned, the positive thing that came out of COVID is that we actually harbored the technology of Zoom and remote working and remote learning. And thankfully we had that at our disposal. But that was the biggest challenge, uh, I would say. And also because of that, just making sure that everybody's on the same page uh, of, the, of the project. You know, it was something, it was a labor of love that obviously came about uh, uh, you know, approximately a year ago. Uh, with the the death, the first video killing that came out of Ahmad Arbery on May 6th. And then that's when I initiated the project. And then three weeks later on May 25th, just in a few days time, was the murder of George Floyd, which we then, of course, know um, the the tumultuous time that, that took place, especially in this country, in the US, uh, but around the world. So, you know, it was challenging and exhilarating at the same time, I would say, because we were actually creating that at the same time while literally the streets were burning outside our, uh, our windows. And we knew that we had the urgency to do that film quickly. And we didn't have the process or the time, you know, as a, as a, as a filmmaker myself, I didn't want to go out and uh, raise money or pitch it to somebody. I just knew it had to be done. So, I phoned up a lot of people and got a lot of people to to help out. That was that was the biggest channel, was just bringing everybody together. Yeah, of course, and it's beautiful. By the way, it's a really beautiful film. So I guess how important is it? Because obviously you do um, a lot of these massive films, and you're obviously a very busy person. But how important to you is it to do these kind of passion projects? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent, like. It's, it's, you know, I joke about it, you know, where I say, you know, my day job, which I love, right? I mean, I'm, I, I feel very fortunate. I've worked hard, obviously, to get to where I am, but I'm fortunate enough to be in that position. And I, you know, when, when I haven't been in the studio for a long time because of COVID, but, uh, you know, driving into the studio every day and seeing Sony Pictures Entertainment and walking along Main Street and seeing, you know, this is where they filmed The Wizard of Oz and, you know, uh, that's incredible, right? That's amazing. And uh, walking down the street and seeing some actor, you know, on Main Street, and, you know, because they're going from one set to another. Um, but I think that that's a job, you know, and I love my job, but it's a job. So, but the passion projects are, you know, I kind of say, you know, the job pays the rent, you know, and the passion project pays the soul. And so it's really important for me as a filmmaker, even, you know, because people ask me how you do all these big movies. Why do you do all these small? And I tend to do smaller indie guerrilla making, you know, guerrilla filmmaking style because because I love it. It keeps me even as a filmmaker, as, a, as an executive, it keeps me sharp. I know I, I'm not just preaching and telling other people kind of how they should make their movies, but I'm actually making movies myself. And a lot of time that is on weekends with friends, with no budgets, just going out, you know, and shooting There's a whole web series that I created, uh, you know, Mondays, I'm not sure if you got a chance to see that, you know, again, it's just a fun project that I created with my girlfriend as a weekend project. And it turned into two years of 24 episodes and 
just really just having fun, thinking up of crazy ideas and and going, how are we going to shoot those on the weekend? I don't know, let's let's do it. So I would say it's really significant. Whatever part, you know, if you get the opportunity, and it is luck. I think there's talent and then there's luck, but I think a lot of it is luck to be given the opportunity. It's like winning the, you know, it's like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. You do if you get to direct a movie, if you get that opportunity at a at a, at a bigger stage, like a studio you've won the golden ticket. You are Charlie Bucket, right? I mean, truly. But most of us, most of the, you know, work at a job and hopefully you enjoy that job. But if you are a filmmaker at heart, if you are a storyteller, it's so easy to do. There's no reason why you can shoot something on your iPhone. You can edit it on iMovie. You can do your your sound and garage band i mean all that's you could just do it you know it's there's and if you have a story to tell or animate on flipper clip i don't know on your iphone well i mean you can do if you really want to tell your story and that's the and that's the passion so i would i would urge everybody to continue doing that at whatever stage you are in your life whether you're a young you know student or a, a you know a, a starting filmmaker or you are at the top level of the filmmaking uh, process. That's awesome. Yeah. I, again, great advice. Um, and I think your passion really shines through, which is awesome. So now I'm going to actually open it up to a few of my friends on this call. Hi. Um, thank again. Thank you so much for coming here. You, you, you have a lot of great advice, but I was wondering for someone who's looking to pursue visual effects, what programs would you recommend starting learning like maybe at our stage right now in film school? Because uh, I know there's a lot of like different programs. Of course, there's the main ones, but I was wondering if there's any specific ones that the industry is currently working in. Yeah, there's, it's a great question. There's a combo. So, so there are, uh, there's a few. I'd say the main visual effects software, I would say, and, and again, I hope the software companies won't kill me for it, but I think Maya, is the leading animation and lighting software. Again, kind of off the shelf, professional software. Uh, Houdini is probably the most prominent effects, creating, you know, effects uh, um, uh, animations and Nuke uh, for compositing. Those I would say are, are the three most prominent ones, but there are other, Blender for example, is an incredible tool and it's free. You know, um, so if I had more time and, and even, you know, you talk about my passion, it's been, I used to be a visual effects artist. I knew Maya and Nuke and Houdini, and I used to do shots. I probably, it's like riding a bike. I, the, the, you know, the, the, the buttons have probably changed, but with a, with a bit of time, I can probably get back into it. But I'm really curious to learn Blender because I think that's a free tool, uh, open source. And uh, at the same time, there's things like Unreal, which is coming big and big into play. Obviously the Adobe suites uh, from After Effects to Animate um, and other softwares. Uh, what I would say is this, I think you can learn, because what you learn is you learn the, you're not, you're not learning where the buttons are. Like I'll, I'll use the driving analogy, right? If you're a good driver, you can drive any car. So you need to learn how to drive. And if you learn how to drive, if you learn, if you learn the principles of a software and, and visual effects, you learn what you need to create in terms of 
animation, if you're an animator, or lighting, if you're a lighter, or compositing, if you're a compositor, or effects animation, if you're doing effects animation, or rigging, if you're a character rigger, or whatever it is that you do in that creative aspect of visual effects, I would say any program that you learn, you're learning the concepts, you're not learning the buttons, you're learning the concepts behind it. You know, I go back to 30 years ago when I was in, 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 in art school, principles that I learned about lighting and coloring, I, I use today. And those are the principles that I learned back then. So at the same time, if you learn a program like Blender because it's free and it's easy, or you learn how to animate on, if you guys have educational, you know, uh, license for Adobe Suites and, and it's cheap or free through your school, I don't know you're learning the principles. Then when you go and, and, and work at a facility, they will teach you the tools that you need because also every facility will probably have their own proprietary software. And you will go through sometimes several weeks of, uh, of training to actually learn on a specific software. So I would say learn the principles and that will then guide you because then you learn how to drive that car. And then if it's now, you know, right hand, you know, versus left hand or, or stick versus automatic or whatever it is. It's just about where the buttons are, but you, you've known how to drive. You've learned how to drive. That's how I would see it. That's great advice. Hello, nice to meet you. It was great listening to everything you had to say. And I guess my question is a little silly, but I kind of want to know what your most difficult job was like even going back to when you were a visual effect artist i know you talked about the wig but like what's something that you had to deal with head on as a visual effects artist that was like oh no uh it's a great question okay now you you've put me on the spot in a good way i'm, I'm trying to think the thing that comes to mind is I, I wasn't an artist and i was a cg supervisor but i remember i worked on x-men 2 and that was you know the second x-men movie it was in 2003 i think or something like that uh so again we obviously had the technology to do things but it, it wasn't as high tech as it was today uh it wouldn't have the rendering power that we had today so i was responsible for a lot of what, what we kind of defined as the phenomena effects you know, the the guy, I can't remember the name now, I apologize, the guy throwing the flames and the Iceman and the, you know, Phoenix with, so how do you create those things or, or Wolverine with his, you know, with his uh, uh, claws. And so a lot of the phenomena effects just take a lot of time to create. Again, back then rendering took a long time and we didn't have the firepower of computing. I have more I don't know, my phone with me. I have more firepower on my iPhone now than the computers did back then in terms of rendering and process time. I'm joking, but you know, it, you can imagine that, right? So a lot of the challenge was how do you create something that looks good and yet is doable? I remember walking in to uh, uh, one of our um, one of the people that I worked with, and they were they were working on fire for for a fire element that we needed for again i can't remember the name of the guy that throws fire but the problem was each frame took between 24 to 48 hours to render one frame of this and at some point you realize i count you calculate the time that you have left for the project 
and the amount of frames that you need, it's like, we will never get this done. And so the challenge had to be, how do we create that same look, but reinvent it? And I remember having difficult conversations with the producer saying, we have to actually start again because the process that we were going down to create the specific effect, if we were to go down it, it looks amazing, takes too long to render, we will never get it rendered in time and we have a release date. And so we had to make the difficult decision of like bite the bullet or the three or four months that we've had before working on it and start again with a new way of thinking that eventually worked out, but it was very you know, anxious time because I put my, you know, myself on the line say this is what we need to do and i believe that we can do it not truly knowing if we could really do it <laughs> that's crazy oh wow yeah i can wow i can't even imagine the stressful decision that was to make that to be very zen but no it was stressful. <laughs> i guess and having confidence in your team also hi um thank you again uh so with the like ever-growing and advancing technology, we now have like deep fakes and you mentioned Unreal Engine and we have movies like Infinity War, which like pretty much have become animated films. And so this is kind of a two-parter, but one, what piece of technology are you most excited for coming up? I'll let you answer that one and then go to the next one. Um, I actually really, I'm excited about Unreal and I'm excited about, you know, a lot of the kind of AI uh, technology that's coming up um, because I think there is a possibility of just creating things a little differently. You know, the pipelines that we were, that we were used to and the timeframes that, that, that we were used to get, get done, I think is going to change. There's some sort of, you know, I think some de democratization, I guess, in the process because, you know, without even knowing it, we use it today, right? If you use Instagram and you bring up the, that, that you know, I'm gonna say that silly uh, uh, um, filter that gives you, you know, doggy ears and the thing, right? That's using AI. That's basically tracking you real time and processing your face in real time, applying a, a pre-existing, it's basically game engine technology, right? It's creating something on the fly, tracks your face, knows that that's your face, and it's getting really good. It's getting really smart, right? So that technology, you know, whereas in the past, not so long ago, to create that, we would have had to scan your face. We still do, but it's going to change. You have to scan your face, create a CG model of you, put it in the computer, track it manually, including movement if you're, if you're moving your mouth or, or blinking, and then adding those components to it. Whereas today with, you know, deep fake and with, again, just the, the simple example is the, um, uh, is Instagram, you know, uh, or even on Zoom, right? You have Zoom, right? you can put moustaches and, you know, that's, that technology at some point in the very near future is going to be utilized to actually create visual effects at a high level. It already is, but that, that excites me because it, it's gonna, what we don't know is, and that's the exciting part, is what that's gonna lead us to. You know, if, if I look back, uh, and again, I, I am uh, old enough to remember when we were shooting on film and the first process that we had to do on film was dust bust, right? 
and that is to take the dust out of the film because the film inevitably had dust in the gate when you scan it and when you get the digital plates there's always you know pops of dust and they had to be manually taken out if we had to do that today there would be a computerized version of you know ai some sort of artificial intelligence that could tell this white spot doesn't fit that round that range of pixels and it would clean it by itself at the time we had to have literally dustbusters, people that their job was to go in frame by frame and clean the dust. So that's how technology has evolved. Has evolved. So I think the technology that we're seeing now that is being used in simple things like Instagram is going to be utilized on a much bigger scale. And it already is in, in films. You know, virtual production is going to become right now. It's obviously on projects like uh, Mandalorian and other thing, other projects. It's a buzzword. It's still expensive. It's still a big deal. But like anything in technology, it's going to become cheaper. It's going to be more accessible. It's going to be easier to shoot. Uh, and it's going to become the norm. And that is exciting because that means that even where you shoot can change. You know, right now, if I want to go and shoot in the desert, for the most part, I need to go and shoot in the desert. But really, if you take the Mandalorian, I could shoot in the desert, but be in Los Angeles or be in Toronto or be anywhere else. So that technology now is still is expensive and takes time. So it's not accessible to everybody unless you are, you know, Lucasfilm or Sony. But that will be that like anything else, the process will be easier, will become cheaper and will be open to everybody to use, I think, in the upcoming years. So that, that, that excites me. So then the second part of my question, you kind of started <clears throat> answering it with the uh, relevancy of virtual productions in a pandemic. But do you see the virtual production completely, CG films replacing motion pictures ever? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think it's going to be on a, really it's going to be on a case by case basis. I think as, as you know, technology, let's say virtual production technology becomes again, cheaper and more accessible. Because right now it's not just about, you know, virtual production, you need to, you know, create the walls. And if I don't know if you guys have seen how, again, just using the Mandalorian as an example, how that was shot. It was in a huge studio in Manhattan Beach, you know, in Los Angeles. And they had this whole studio with, with you know, hundreds of feet of high-end uh, LED screens. That's expensive. It's expensive to put it together. It's expensive to manage. Again, not every movie can... Um, can have that, but that's going to become cheaper. And I think it's going to be accessible, but I don't think it's going to still get away from those people that say, Hey, I want to go and shoot in the, in, in, in a desert. I don't think that's going to take away from that. It's going to open up doors to do things a little differently and allow for, for, you know, again, where, where it comes into play is things like, I think it could come into play in things like, and it, and it comes into play now in different ways. If you have a movie that's shot 95% in one place, let's say, it, let's say it's Toronto, but then Chris needs to go to Paris and there's a scene that happens in Paris. We're not going to you know, do a whole shoot and take everybody to Paris. So what happens today is we can either put you on a green screen or shoot find a place that kind of looks like Paris and add an Eiffel Tower in, in the background, or you could, in the future, becomes a little cheaper and a little easier to control. You could actually go, just use plates, go into a virtual production stage, and shoot as if you are in Paris. I'm simplifying the process. 
but that's where I can see. But you still shoot the majority of movie in Toronto, and you'll shoot on, uh, uh, you know, in real locations. Um, I don't think it's going to completely substitute that, to be honest. I think it's going to be a combo. That's, it's, yeah. tool. it's going to be another tool at the end of the day. For sure. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that specific scenario. Um, Cause I actually, I did an internship at a video games company and that's something that they talked about a lot. There was the unreal engine, but yeah, but the, I hadn't thought about it in situations like that where you, yeah, need one or two scenes in other places, but I can totally see that being, yeah, really a uh, clever way to use that tool. And yeah, once it is a bit cheaper and more accessible, I could see that being common practice. I'll go quick. I was just wondering how the process goes with effects on set. Because I know there is always kind of discussion. Should you do the explosion, for example, in post-production or should you do it and you shoot it on the maquette and then slow it down or do you shoot it in real size? How does that process work and who do you usually talk to to decide those, to make those decisions on what is going to be computer generated and what it's going to be in real life? It's a good question. There's no one way to answer it because a lot of it is going to be determined on the needs of the project and the needs of of the, of the specific effect you're trying to create. I mean, what I would say in general, and this is even, you know, I'm a visual effects guy, meaning I, that's my profession. I would say, if you can shoot it for real, shoot it for real. We have enough work in visual effects. If you can shoot it for real, do it for real. There's no substituting doing it for real. Uh, but saying that, again, circumstances, let's say you are shooting in, I don't know. I don't know Toronto. I've been in Toronto. I don't know the, the downtown Toronto where the, I don't know. I can't remember the name of the place, but you're shooting in downtown Toronto and there's, you know, Spider-Man needs to go through and, and, and blow up a building. You're not going to, you're shooting on location. You're not going to blow up that building, right? So that's a decision that you have no choice. You're not going to blow up that building full stop. So you will create everything to simulate the building exploding. You might have actors on the ground and then you might have to throw some light at them at a particular moment. So it feels like, and then you take it back into post-production and you explode the building and you marry it together. But you could be shooting that on a, on a, on a remote desert location. And now it's not a building in downtown Toronto, but it's a building in, I don't know, some, godforsaken place in the middle of nowhere that's just a wreck anyway and they're going to blow the thing up great blow it up but then also it comes down to cost how much time and money is it going to take to blow up how safe is it for the most part if you do a big explosion like that you it's a one-hit wonder you have once to get it right um so i think you know that's part of the puzzle that, that you I, I was talking about in the beginning about looking at a script and going all right how are we going to evaluate what the cost is for that? Well, if there's a big explosion that's happening in downtown Toronto, I'm going to assume 100% that is going to be a CG explosion. Now, we might go and shoot elements for it, right? So we could, it doesn't have to be completely a CG effects explosion. We might say, hey, these people, we shoot the plate of the actors in downtown Toronto and they're looking out the building and if something explodes and we put the light on them, then we'll go out into... A, 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 an exterior studio space somewhere and actually create an angle and actually do an a real explosion that is an effects 
proper effects-driven explosion and use that as an element, take that element, composite in the shot, for the most part, we'll probably have to clean up and add some more effects to it to make it look bigger, better, different, because again, it's subjective. And that was, for the most part, a one-hit wonder. So that's normally how we would do it, but that's part of the puzzle. Using miniatures, you know, again, it works for some. There's a project that we're thinking about now, uh, that we're, we're thinking about doing now, and, and there's a big flood that, that, that that's potentially going to happen. And, and one of the, you know, producers were talking about the movie The Impossible. I'm not sure if you guys have seen that. It's it's a movie about the uh, the tsunami and a family that gets stuck in, I think, Naomi Watts and... Um, you and anyway. McGregor, I think. You and McGregor, thank you. And they actually if you they actually created the whole tsunami coming over the whole wave coming over the the resort as a miniature shoot and it's incredible if you google online you know the impossible miniature shoot you'll see the miniature is not really a you know it's not a train set it's huge it's and it's impressive but it's a one hit wonder you have to really know what you're doing that is something that Again, technology has progressed to the point where now when, when the impossible was done, even water work and CG water was a little bit more complex. Now it's easier, still complex, but easier. So, so you know, we probably won't go and do the miniature, even though it was brought up. Uh, but certainly take a look at that YouTube video. Um, it's just impressive to, to see what they did with that. All right. I will for sure, uh, as well, I'm sure everyone. <clears throat> So I'm going to wrap this up now, but before we do, I did ask to prepare five film recommendations. So I'm very curious as to what those are. So if you could walk us through that, that would be great. Okay. I'm going to get, and I thought about that a lot about what do I recommend? Obviously you, you've invited me here as a, as a visual effects person, but I wanted to actually talk about films that made an impact on me personally. Um, and I think a lot of the time they have nothing to do with whether they're good or bad movies. You know, it's just a certain moment in time you've seen a movie and it, it you are affected by it in some way. So four were easy for me. Uh, you know, the the, the fifth one uh, I'm in two minds about. But I think the first one that came to mind is actually Do the Right Thing. And Do the Right Thing uh, was a movie that I saw when I was a student. And I didn't really know anything about Spike Lee. I uh, didn't really know. I was, I was in the UK. I was in England. I didn't really know. I mean, you know, I knew about some of the the racial issues that that obviously have taken place in you know in in America. But I wasn't. It wasn't a day to day thing for me, you know, because I wasn't living in England. I mean, in in America. And I remember going to see Do the Right Thing, and I was blown away by just the subject matter, the the inherent difficulties of you know the racial issues that take place, the power of that movie. I mean, it was just powerful. I mean, and even, you know, obviously the, 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 the black and white animosity and even that scene, if you haven't seen it, when, you know, they're in the pizzeria and, and come by the name of the guy, but he's asking a Spike Lee, Spike Lee's asking the guy who owns the pizzeria, like the, the, the wall of fame and they're all black athletes. And yet he's a racist. And so how can you have that? Well, it's different because they are athletes. You know, it's just things like that that are pointing out about the, just the racial injustice in, in this country. And then, of course, I moved here and realized how. But that, that was a movie that really had a big impact on me. Um, Pulp Fiction is another one because I at that when I saw it, when it came out, 
I didn't know uh, really much about a Tarantino. I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs. And I went to see Pulp Fiction not knowing anything about it. And it was just, wow, the, the, the power, the smart, the, the funny, the violence, it, you know, the, the music. It was incredible and uh, really powerful. And, and I loved it. Another movie that I really love, more recent, uh, Isle of Dogs. Uh, Wes Anderson is one of my favorite uh, filmmakers. And I think Isle of Dogs is a work of art. You could literally stop on every frame and print it and put it up on your wall. It, it's, it's amazing. And also um, Fantastic Mr. Fox is another one, which is great. But, you know, that shows the power of animation where really simple animation, you know, really simple uh, characters. They don't emote a lot. They don't have a lot of facial features. It's all in the acting, in the voice acting and in the design and in the structure of the movie. And really, really powerful. Um, another one that I would say goes back a little bit, but I think it's it's just genius filmmaking, uh, is um, Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin. Um, and if you guys haven't seen Charlie Chaplin movies, go and watch some Charlie Chaplin movies because you know we take it for granted now how films are made. But when you think about somebody like Charlie Chaplin who's making movies in you know in the the, the teens and, and 20s and 30s especially, you know, he made movies afterwards, but at that time when they were making stuff up about how to create shots, how to create um, an all silent, you know, how to create emotions, how to build your characters without ever saying a word. Um, so all his movies, but modern times. And the other one I would say, which is just because I'm a big fan of rom-coms is When Harry Met Sally. I don't think they make enough, just fun, just fun movies that are just funny and great. And the characters, if you look at, you know, if you just watch when Harry met Sally and just watch uh, Meg Ryan, just even put, put it on silent and just watch her, how she emotes and how she, her facial expressions. And it's just, it's just great. So those are my recommendations. Thank you so much. Yes. That was five. Yeah. Plus fantastic. Mr. Fox is a little yeah, asterisk. Um, yeah, no, you have fabulous taste. I love when Harry met Sally and I love Isle of Dogs. I've seen that movie like five times. It's just so visually perfect, like, and such brilliant filmmaking. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think that's it then. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk about your journey and uh, a bit about what you do. And obviously there's quite a lot about visual effects that we haven't learned in film school. And I think a lot of people are interested in. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate the, you taking the time to, to run us through yeah. that. But that is all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to watch Cops and Robbers on Netflix and be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram or join our Facebook group for information about upcoming guests. New episodes come out every Saturday. 